Well, uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, there's a study guide in your worship folder. And as you retrieve those, I'm going to pray for us, okay? We praise you, Lord, for your gift of life. It's a wonderful thing, beautiful thing. Thank you for the gift. Lord, may we always be a church that supports and celebrates life, born and unborn. And we thank you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us now through the word of God, through your Holy Spirit. We've got some interesting things to talk about today, Lord. So uh, help me to say the things you want me to say and only those things. And uh, may we grow in love as a church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I uh, spent the summer after my sophomore year in college in Manhattan. I was part of a summer ministry team of 30 students from Liberty University, and uh, we were based out of the Manhattan Bible Church that summer. Our basic goal was to minister and share the gospel with as many people in the Big Apple as we possibly could. And it was a great experience. We'd get up early in the morning, have devotion time, then pair up with our partner, and from morning till night, we would walk through the projects in the neighborhood sharing Jesus with as many people as we possibly could. We'd be knocking on doors in the tenement buildings, talking to people about Jesus, stopping people on street corners, playing hoops with kids and looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We even preached on the subway trains. Can you believe that? We'd get at opposite ends of a car and stand up and say, can I have your attention, please? I've got a message for you. Something that thinking about today would just, you know, gives, make chills run up my spine, but... We were young and foolish enough to do that kind of stuff. I even got to preach on Times Square, preaching the gospel on Times Square with a heckler about five feet away from me, challenging everything I was saying. And my team leader just said, keep preaching and just look straight ahead. Don't even look at the guy. So it was a wild, wild summer. Fell in love with the gospel that summer. Had a number of amazing experiences. But probably one of the most moving parts of that summer was the night where... um, our team invited in Pastor Alex, the associate pastor there at Manhattan Bible Church, to share his testimony with us. And Pastor Alex was a big man with a Greek heritage. I think he spoke three or four languages fluently. And uh, he came in that night and he shared the story of how Jesus had saved him from a life of sin and degradation and a life bent on self-destruction. And as he told the story, Pastor Alex had this huge face and it was just shining and tears were streaming down his cheeks as he told us how Jesus chased him down and saved him and then called him into the gospel ministry. And it was a powerful and moving moment. And when he finished up, he finished up with a song. And I can still, when I close my eyes, I can see his face, I can see the tears, I can see him looking up to heaven and singing the song, The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It will forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. That summer, that team, that night, that moment, and especially that song are forever etched in my memory. In that moment, I heard about the love of God. I saw the love of God on Pastor Alex's face. I sensed the love of God. I felt the love of God. 
It was like I was totally engulfed and enveloped by the love of God. It's like a tidal wave of God's love was rushing over all of us that night and sweeping us away, carrying us to a place that we never wanted to leave. The love of God is a glorious, glorious thing. And I thank God that I've experienced it, and many of you have as well. You know, the Bible tells us that God is love. Yes, He is holy. Oh, He is so holy. He is righteous beyond imagination, and He is love. Agape love. We've been dipping our toes the last few weeks into the ocean of God's love, seeking to explore it, to know it, to experience it, and mostly to share it and express it to other people. That's what this 28-day love dare is all about. Loving others like Jesus has loved us. Well, we have a love coach. It's the Apostle Paul, and we have a textbook. It's 1 Corinthians 13, and so far we've seen several things. We saw a couple weeks ago that love is supreme in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, where Paul wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is supreme. We are nothing without love. And then last week we saw that love is selfless. In fact, this is the definition of agape love, self-sacrifice for the highest good of others. And it's expressed in how we relate to people. We saw this in Paul's writing, love is patient and kind and love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. True agape love is selfless and it is relentless. It does not give up, bail out, cave in, or let go. And now this morning we're going to see that love is superior. And it's superior because it's going to outlast. Love will outlast everything else in this life including the need for and the use of spiritual gifts. Paul wrote in verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, you might want to underline that phrase because we're going to come back to it. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now this passage contains some very interesting and intriguing and controversial stuff, and we're going to get into it some, but I don't want us to lose focus on the primary point here, which is what? Love. Some people have debated their interpretation of this this passage with such vehemence and they've gotten so dogmatic and end up generating so much heat over it that love somehow gets lost in all of that. 
it would not be right to discuss the great love chapter of the Bible without love. And so let's keep love in front of us this morning. I believe Paul wanted the Corinthian church that he was writing to and us to understand that love trumps all. Love trumps everything. That the fruit of the Spirit is superior to the gifts of the Spirit and will ultimately outlast them. And so you say, well, why is he so intent on making this point? Well, it's because of how that church was acting. And we've talked about this quite a bit. There were certain members of that church who were all puffed up about how gifted they were, and they were seeking to draw attention to themselves and make others feel inferior, and that was creating division in that church, and that was breaking the heart of God. And it was breaking Paul's heart. And so he contends that ministering out of of your giftedness to other people without love is just wrong. It's out of alignment with God's plan. It doesn't make sense. It's counterproductive. And so what he does in the passage we're looking at this morning is he holds spiritual gifts in one hand and he holds agape love in the other and he draws three contrasts between the two to make his point. And the first contrast is this. Love is eternal, but spiritual gifts are temporary. That's what he's saying. Verse 8, love never ends. It's eternal. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Do you see the contrast between love and spiritual gifts? Love will never end, but spiritual gifts will. And therefore, by implication, focus on love. Focus on love. And notice that he picks three gifts to make his case. What are they? You see them there? Prophecy. Tongues and knowledge. And I believe that his selection of those three gifts is probably not random. (laughs) I believe he had a purpose for choosing those. It's likely that these were the particular gifts that were most highly prized in that church. The gifts that everybody wanted. These were the gifted people that everybody wanted to hang around, that everybody wanted to be like, that everybody held up and put on a pedestal. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge. Gift of prophecy is that ability to hear and receive revelation from God and then speak it to people. That's what prophecy is. It has several different expressions, but in its essence, that's what it is. Tongues is the supernatural ability to speak a human language that you never learned, never went to school to learn. It's just given to you. You have the ability to speak it to others. It's also possibly the ability to speak to God in an unknown prayer language, as we'll discover in 1 Corinthians 14. Knowledge is the desire and ability to grasp the mysteries of God, that special capacity to understand God's grand plan of the universe and how the universe is put together, knowledge. Paul declares that these three gifts, while very good and beautiful and helpful to the body of Christ, will not last forever, but love will. Love endures forever. Now, questions in your mind, perhaps. So those gifts are going to pass away. When? How? Why? Lots of Christians want to know the answers to those questions, and they're important to us because the answer determines whether or not we should still today be seeking these gifts. 
in our experience. Now, Paul doesn't tell us everything, but he does give a few hints. He says that prophecy and knowledge will pass away and that tongues will cease. Prophecy and knowledge will pass away and tongues will cease. Two different words. It could be translated like this. Something's going to come that will cause the gift of prophecy to pass away. Something's going to come that will cause the gift of knowledge to end. But the gift of speaking in tongues is going to cease in and of itself. It's going to just fade away. Okay, so what is it that's going to cause the gifts of prophecy and knowledge to pass away? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 11. So let's wait just a moment to answer that. But how about the gift of tongues? Is the gift of tongues, or excuse me, if the gift of tongues is going to fade away on its own, did that already happen? Or is that gift still being given to Christians, to believers in our day and age? Well, that question is hotly debated among evangelicals, isn't it? All over the world, particularly with the resurgence of tongues speaking in the last hundred years since the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 out in Los Angeles, which gave birth to the modern Pentecostal movement. Just this explosion of tongues speaking in the last hundred years or so. And then the charismatic renewal that emerged in this country in the early 1960s. You see, your answer to this question matters because if you believe that tongues already ceased at some earlier point in history, then you would have to conclude that all the tongue speaking that is going on today is something other than the biblical gift of tongues. Maybe it's a psychological phenomenon or a learned behavior or as some believe and as I was taught, demonic in origin. So your interpretation matters. Now, I believe that this is a gray area issue in the Bible, a matter on which the Bible is not crystal clear. That's why tens of millions of believers in Jesus all around the globe differ and land on different points in this issue. What we need to remember is that love trumps all. That wherever you land on this issue is not the most important thing Loving each other despite our differences is the most important thing. Well, there's more to say about this, and things do get a little clearer as we keep going with Paul's thoughts. So the first contrast is love is eternal and spiritual gifts are temporary. The second contrast is that love is complete, but spiritual gifts are partial. Partial. Verse 9, for we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So follow this now. Paul is underscoring his main point that love is better, that love is superior to spiritual gifts. He's already said spiritual gifts are going to pass away, that they're temporary. Now he adds to that they're also just partial. They're incomplete. We know in part. We prophesy in part. And this is true, isn't it? Even those gifted in knowledge would have to admit that they do not yet have full, complete understanding of everything in the universe. Pastor Claude, a few weeks ago, mentioned that scientists in recent years have come to understand and believe that our universe is actually filled with 
a hundred billion galaxies. Something unthinkable just a few decades ago. We're still learning. There are gaps in our knowledge still. We don't know everything. Our knowledge is growing, and it's growing because it's not complete. There's room to know more. And, like Paul wrote, prophecy is incomplete also. God's revelation to mankind is not full and complete yet. Now, some of what we can know has been revealed. We do have the Bible which tells us everything we need to know about how to be made right with God. Tells us the complete plan of salvation right here in the Bible. But there are many other things that the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, such as, why did God create Satan? And how many angels are there? And why doesn't God just snuff Satan out? And when exactly will Jesus return? And from right here in this passage, what is the perfect and when will it come? There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that has not yet been revealed to us. We prophesy in part. Plus, there are certainly many things about our individual lives that are still a mystery to us that we can only surmise about. Why did that person have to die so young? Why did that happen to that congresswoman out in Tucson a couple weeks ago? Why did I lose my job? How will my kids turn out? Why did that wonderful Christian lady have to contract cancer? We don't understand those things. Those things have not been fully revealed to us yet. We have God's revelation in the Bible, and we have the Holy Spirit who leads us and teaches us in the ways of God. But let's be honest, even now, 20 centuries after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, we still only know in part and we only prophesy in part. We see in a mirror dimly right now. It's not complete yet. It's not crystal clear. Now, if you agree with me on that point, that these gifts are still today only partial, we'll see that that will help to answer the question that we posed earlier about when these gifts will cease. Because look at the next phrase. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. There's the answer. When will these partial gifts of knowledge and prophecy pass away? Well, they're going to pass away when the perfect comes. And that's when in your mind you have the question, uh, what's the perfect? And when is it coming? And we'll get to that in a minute. But first look at verse 12, where he wrote, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes face to face. Now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now follow Paul's line of reasoning here. Spiritual gifts are partial. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but something called the perfect is going to come that will cause the partial things to disappear, to pass away. And when that happens, everything is going to get very clear. Before the perfect comes, our knowledge and understanding is partial and incomplete and hazy, like looking into a first century mirror, which wasn't like our crystal clear mirrors. It was basically polished metal, like you'll still see on occasion at some, in some campground restrooms and Metro Park restrooms. You've seen those? 
very hazy, very dim, and you're looking, it's like, is that even me in there? That's what first century mirrors look like. And before the perfect comes, that's what our, that describes our knowledge and our understanding. It's, it's dim, it's hazy, it's foggy. But when the perfect comes, it says we will know fully. We will have full understanding of God's plan in the universe and of each other. Just as we are fully known right now, the implication is by God. That's amazing. So here is the important interpretive question I want to ask you to ponder. Has the perfect come yet? Has the perfect come yet? Based on what we've seen in this passage, has it come yet? Here, now, in 2011, do we yet see face-to-face? Is it that crystal clear now? Or is it still kind of dim? Do we know fully yet? As we are known by God, or is our knowledge still partial? Your answer to that question matters. Now, we'll explore the possibilities for what the perfect is in a minute. But there's a third contrast that Paul is drawing between love and spiritual gifts. Are you guys still with me? It's kind of heavy, I know. Stay with me. Third contrast, love is mature and spiritual gifts are elementary or juvenile. You say, where do you get that? Verse 11, when I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. How many of you have used this verse somewhere in your parenting? I know I have. Son, it's time to grow up. (laughs) You want to become a man? You want to be treated like a man? Then put away childish things. Get rid of, fill in the blank, whatever I happen to want to do away with that day. Put away that childish stuff. It's time to grow up and be mature. I've heard our youth pastor use this very verse with our middle school and high school students on occasion. You want me to treat you like a man or you want me to treat you like a kid? If you want me to treat you like a man, act like a man. Put away childish things. I suppose there is a transcendent principle here that can be used in parenting. I hope so because I've done it. But in the context... It's talking about how in God's reckoning, spiritual gifts are elementary, they're juvenile, but love is mature and grown up. That's the contrast he's drawing. When I was a little kid, he writes, my thinking, my speaking, my reasoning were childish. Not bad, not evil, just immature, childish. In the context, this is no doubt a reference to the speaking gifts and reasoning gifts and knowledge gifts, what he's been talking about all through this passage. I think Paul is likely saying two things here. I think the first thing he's saying is, you Corinthians need to grow up. You need to grow up in how you minister to each other. You're you're acting so childish when you use your gifts to draw attention to yourself and to exalt yourself rather than to bless others. That is so immature. Grow up. The mature way is the way of love. I think it's also possible that he's making a statement about the church age in general. That spiritual gifts are for the immature, childish stages of the church. But they will pass away when the church of Jesus reaches maturity. When we grow up. And when will that be? Well, it'll be when the perfect comes. 
And that takes us back to that question. What is the perfect and when will it come? Well, let's tackle that. One of the difficulties in interpreting this passage is that in the original language, this word is in the neuter form, not masculine or feminine. So it could be translated the perfect thing or just perfection. When perfection comes or when the perfect thing comes, then the partial will pass away. What could it be referring to? Well, what I was taught is that the perfect was the Bible, that it refers to the completion of the New Testament. So, in effect, the perfect came in 90 A.D. when the New Testament was completed. That's what I was taught. The end of the apostolic era, when all the inspired writings of the apostles were done and the apostles passed off the scene, we have the perfect, and so the partial gifts have already passed away and did so a long time ago. That's what I was taught. But at some point, I began to ask some questions. Well, Wow, if the perfect came 1,900 years ago, and it's the the completed Bible, can it really be said that we now know fully, even as we are fully known? Do we really see face-to-face now and not dimly as in a hazy mirror? I don't know. Some would say, well, the perfect refers to the maturity of the church. And I see some merit in that. But that still doesn't help us much. When did the church get mature? Is it mature yet? If it is, can we now say that we know fully, even as we are fully known, and we see face to face? Some would say, well, it's not that. It's not the completion of the New Testament or the first century maturity of the church. It's the rapture. It's the rapture, and and that may be the case. When the perfect comes is when Jesus comes to rapture his church away. Of course, that would mean that the perfect hasn't come yet because I'm still here and you're still here. Of course, we know that the Lord is coming on May 21st and you need to be ready for that. You've seen the billboards? And uh, we're going to talk about that when we get into May if we're still here. I've joked with Pastor Claude several times. I say, you know, when the rapture comes, you're in charge, okay, because I'm going to be out of here. He loves it when I say that. (laughs) So what is the perfect? Is it the rapture of the church? Or maybe it's the second coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth. That makes more sense. The parousia, it's called. His return to earth. Certainly we'll see face to face then. That one's closely linked to the next one, which is the millennial kingdom age. Some people believe that's the perfect. When the kingdom arrives, when... The perfect king, Jesus, returns to earth and sets up his righteous government in Jerusalem and initiates a new era of righteousness. I thought, I believed that for a while, but then I realized that the Bible declares that there's still going to be a lot of prophesying going on during the kingdom age. You read Isaiah and Jeremiah and you see prophesying is going on all during the kingdom age. It isn't done away with. It hasn't passed away. So that says to me, well, the perfect must be even beyond that. And so it may be that the the perfect refers to the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, heaven. I think if anything could be called the perfect, wouldn't it be the perfect place ruled over by the perfect king? 
Now, do you see that if the perfect does not refer to the completion of the New Testament or the end of the apostolic era back in 90, 100 AD, the first century, then it has not come yet. That it was not only future to Paul, who was writing in the 50s AD, but it's still future to us here in 2011. Well, this is my position. And I'll admit, I could be wrong. That the perfect has not come yet. And that therefore the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and the other gifts are still being given today. Still in existence in the church today for the building up of the body of Christ and the glory of God. You say, well, what about the gift of tongues? Paul said that they would cease. They would just fade away. Unlike the other two gifts, which he said would be stopped by the arrival of the perfect. He just says tongues are going to fade out. Some scholars believe that what Paul was saying here is that tongues would already be gone, would have already ceased before the perfect ever shows up. That they will have already ceased and so they won't need to be stopped by something. They will have faded away. But even so, if the perfect has not arrived yet, which is my position, then the biblical gift of tongues could still be in existence today. And of course, millions of believers in Christ all over the world believe that it is because they believe they've been given the gift of tongues, including some wonderful believers right here in this body at New Life. So what do we make of that? Well, there are two very broad general positions. I know I'm stretching you a little bit today, but let me lay these out for you. See if I can summarize them. You have the cessationists and the continuationists. There's some words you probably haven't used recently. The cessationists, you, you hear the word cease in there? Cessationists, cease. The cessationists, and this is what I was taught growing up and in Bible college, believe that the miraculous sign gifts like the gifts of tongues and healings and miracles ceased when the New Testament was completed in 90 AD. They believe the perfect already came and caused those gifts to pass away. Some of them call it the maturity of the church. They say the church matured after the apostles passed off the scene and still a first century date. Cessationists believe that miraculous gifts were given to the first century apostles to confirm or validate or authenticate their, their ministry. Remember, in the first century, there was no written Bible, so anybody could stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and say anything. So how would you know who was really speaking for God? Well, the cessationists would point to 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 and say, God gave the apostles miraculous gifts to support and authenticate them. So they were able to heal and speak in tongues and do miracles and even raise people from the dead. And that's when people go, would go, oh, well, I'm going to listen to them then. Because <laughs> they seem to have God's validation on their lives. And they would say that when the canon of Scripture was completed and the apostles passed off the scene, those gifts were no longer needed because their purpose had been fulfilled. So they disappeared. Again, this is what I was taught. Um, but then when you look in the Scripture, you find that there are others than just the apostles who had some of these miraculous gifts. So that muddied the waters a little bit. The cessationists would teach and believe that modern-day expressions of tongue-speaking and Gifts of healing and those sorts of things 
are something other than the biblical gifts. They might be explainable as psychological phenomena or psychosocial phenomena or learned behavior, or in some cases they might say, that's just demonic. That's craziness. That's demonic. Those are the cessationists. On the other side are the continuationists who believe that the gifts continue to be given by the Holy Spirit to the church, including the miraculous gifts that the Holy Spirit is still even today distributing these supernatural abilities to certain believers in the church. Continuationists believe the perfect hasn't come yet. That miraculous gifts have been given throughout the ages for the purposes of glorifying God and building up the church and evangelizing the lost. And they would attempt to show that tongues did not cease in 90 AD, but that tongues and other miraculous expressions have continued all through the ages, and especially in the last hundred years, the explosion of tongues all over the globe among believers, giving evidence that they have not yet ceased. The continuationists would say that modern-day expressions of tongue speaking and healing and miracles are either legitimate expressions of the biblical gift or, in some cases, they would probably admit, you know, they are um, aberrations of that or illegitimate expressions. But they would say, you can't write them all off. There is legitimate tongue speaking going on. Now, some continuationists have held that speaking in tongues is a sign of something or an evidence of something. They might say something like this. Well, brother, you know, you got to talk like that. Well, brother, if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you ain't saved. I go, really? Or, well, brother, if you ain't spoken in tongues, you haven't received the baptism of the Spirit or you haven't received the filling of the Holy Spirit. So they would say and contend that speaking in tongues is the evidence of true salvation or true baptism in the Spirit or true filling by the Spirit. And certainly there are some passages in the book of Acts that that indicate that. But you know, I would say, wasn't it Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 12 who wrote, do all speak in tongues? Wasn't it just a gift given to certain believers in the body of Christ? Are you saying that every Christian should have to speak in tongues or if they don't, it's evidence that they aren't saved or baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit? How come there's a whole book in the, first, in the New Testament called 1 John devoted to the evidence of salvation and tongues isn't even mentioned? If it was an evidence of salvation, a primary evidence, wouldn't it be in 1 John somewhere or Ephesians somewhere or Galatians or Thessalonians or Philippians? The passages in the epistles that talk about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit don't mention tongues. They mention the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Jesus. So I struggle with these who I call the old-style Pentecostals. you got to speak in tongues, brother. You know, take a class or let us pray over you for a thousand hours until you get it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. Cessationists would counter back and say, no, the evidence of being under the Spirit's control is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, those that we find in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. So, through personal study of the Scriptures and much prayer, 
Each of us need to form our own personal conviction on what we believe about this. It's a gray area in Scripture. It's not crystal clear. It's still like looking at that mirror, that hazy, foggy mirror, which tells me that the perfect hasn't come yet. Personally, as I said, I don't believe the perfect has come yet. I could be wrong. I will admit that. I believe it's going to come with the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. Because of that, I believe that these spiritual gifts, even the gift of tongues, are still in existence today. I'd call myself a moderate continuationist if somebody asked and wanted to know. Because I don't believe that speaking in tongues is the definitive sign and evidence of being saved or being baptized in the Spirit or being filled by the Spirit. I believe it's a spiritual gift given to some members of the body of Christ with which they can glorify God and edify the church and praise God more fully. I myself have never spoken in tongues. Although, like some of you, I've asked the Lord and said, if you want me to have this gift, I'm open. I'm glad to have, I want to have all the gifts that you have reserved for me. But not yet. I have many friends and some relatives even who do believe that they have this gift. And I can say with certainty that they love Jesus Christ and follow him closely. And they're not being drawn into demonism through this. They tell me that they feel closer to Christ when they express this gift. Just like I feel closer to Christ when I express my gifts and you feel closer to Christ when you're exercising your gifts. Now, in chapter 14, we're going to see that Paul severely regulated the exercise of the gift of tongues in the public worship assembly. And he almost regulated it out of existence because of the lack of benefit, the relative lack of benefit that it brings to other people and because of its potential for confusion. He regulated it severely in the public worship setting. So we'll get there in a few weeks and seek to understand that. Here's the bottom line of this passage. Love will last forever. Spiritual gifts won't. Love trumps all. Love matters most. Love is better. Love is supreme. And the primary expression of love, self-sacrifice, was demonstrated most fully in who? Jesus Christ. That's our um, scripture verse, memory verse for this weekend. How many of you have memorized John 3.16 in your life? You know John 3.16. Here's 1 John 3.16, which is as potent and poignant as John 3.16. Let's read this aloud together. It's printed out for you on the bottom of your um, outline there, I believe. Let's say it aloud together. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. One more time. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You know what that verse tells us? Love always involves a death. It involves dying to self. It does, doesn't it? Love is patient. Can you be patient without dying to self? Love is kind, love is not irritable, love is not resentful, love is not self-seeking, love is not puffed up and proud and arrogant. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life and died to inspire and enable us to die to ourselves so we could show his kind of love to others. Love requires death, a dying to self. And that's a work of God in us, enabling us to love. Well, we're doing this love dare, and it's just a tool. You know, I mean, I suppose someone could do all of these things and not be loving. And I suppose that um, someone could be loving and not do any of these things. It's just a tool. It's just a prompt. But it is a prompt to spur us on to love and good deeds towards others. So on the back of your sermon outline, I have seven more. And we've been enjoying seeking God and asking for his grace to do these. Here's the one for today, day 15. It's very practical. Buy a gift card and give it away. Purchase a $25 or a $50 gift card. That's my, you know, um, what's the word? Cheap. (laughs) Um, There's a better word than that. What is it? Whatever, you get it. Buy a gift card for someone and keep it with you this week, asking the Lord to show you someone to give it to. Surprise them with it. Enjoy the blessing of loving through giving. Somebody in our church jumped the gun on this and uh, already did it, and they, they wrote us an email last week. Wrote this, It is amazing how God gives us opportunities to bless others by giving to them. I was at the Cracker Barrel this morning. Anybody like Cracker Barrel? Garage sale with food? Yeah? I was at Cracker Barrel this morning, and I was sitting next to an older man who uh, was reading the paper, and when the waitress came to take his order, he said, I'm, I'm looking at the paper here, and that's my wife's obituary. She died yesterday. And he said, you know, my wife was at the Cleveland Clinic and nursing home, and I rarely left her side. So this morning, here in this restaurant, is the first good meal I've had, and I don't know how long. The lady in our church said, I talked with this man about what had happened and about his family who were all coming in that same day. And she said, what a joy I had to pay for his meal. I felt prompted to pay for his meal and then give him a $25 gift card without him knowing that it was me to show God's love to him in a practical way. She wrote, I love little moments like this because this morning turned out to be a great blessing. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And in giving, not only do you bless others, but you are blessed. Amen? And so let me pray for all of us this morning. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for New Life Church that we would become an even more loving church. I mean, a lot of people say we're a loving church now, but I know there's so much more. You want to expand our heart so much more. Would you transform us into an agape love church? Open our eyes, open our ears to the needs all around us 
Lord, so often we're closed down and shut down. We don't have our, our antenna up, our spiritual antenna, but every day in our world there are needs all around us. And we pray that the voice of the Spirit in our hearts would be crisp and clear. Speak to that person. Give to that person. Forgive this person. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church these days. And Lord, with these kind of controversial things that we've talked about this morning, would would you grant that love would trump all in these matters? That even if we find that we disagree with each other on some of these finer points, that we would say, you know what, we can agree to disagree because we love each other. We're in the same family and love will outlast everything else. Grant us your grace to die to self that we might live a life of love. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen.